Hello and welcome to Inequality Talks, a podcast from the volunteers of the Economic Inequality Group at Melenfolkely Samwerke Aarhus. I am Sebastian, and this podcast is a collaboration with a group of volunteers from both Aarhus and Copenhagen who are investing climate litigation cases. Helena, a volunteer from Copenhagen, interviews Linus Kolun Larsen on her thesis Climate Below the Glaciers challenges to climate justice in Peruvian mountains and German courts. They will discuss how the law and court cases can be used as a tool for advancing climate justice, but also the difficulties to use a national bond judiciary system to address global issues. So, in this podcast, we're going to talk to Linus Golon Larsen about a lawsuit in Peru, but in Germany, but uh, by a Peruvian farmer. Uh, we're going to start by presenting ourselves. We are a group from Mellemfolklit Samvirke, or ActionAid Denmark. We work with uh, climate justice through the courts and through legislation. We aim to do more podcasts of this kind where we talk to experts and activists who are also, as we are, interested in legislation and the courtrooms as a means to achieving climate justice. So, firstly, uh, we want to present uh, Line, who is sitting here with me. Can you present yourself, Line? Yes, of course. Hello. Uh, yeah, so I'm Line and uh, I'm a political ecologist and anthropologist. Um, at the moment, uh, I work as a freelance journalist, as an outdoor guide, and and then I'm a co-author of of um, of a new re- released book uh, with together with the Setkin Collective. Um, that's on climate denial and the rising far right in Europe, um, but that's another topic. Uh, today we are going to talk about my my master thesis. Um, then I finished a few years ago, um, and that, as you said, concerns this climate lawsuit uh, against a German coal company. Um, and it also concerns perceptions of climate blame uh, in the Andes in Peru. Um, and actually, they the, the have just been uh, released an, an, uh, a new study that says that uh, that this area has actually experienced one of the uh, one of the earliest fatal impacts of climate change uh, identified globally, because there was a glacial la- glacial lake outburst flood in 1941 um, that killed almost 2,000 people, and it just been um, they yeah they just found out that 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 was actually also a consequence of climate change. Um, yeah, so it's, it was a really interesting area to to do field work in. Mm. It sounds like a, a super interesting area and a very interesting master thesis that you wrote. Uh, I think first we want to know a bit about the context of the lawsuit, um, a bit about the history and how you got uh, interested in the lawsuit. Yeah, sure. Um, so it f- I first uh, got interested in in this case. Uh, during COP23 in Bonn in Germany um, back in 2017. Uh, I was there to represent my university um, at the meeting, uh, and at the same time I was there to do activism uh, as part of Indigalinde against this actually very same coal company as the lawsuit uh, um, goes against. Um, yeah, so anyway, um, 
So during this meeting, there was a big uh, climate demonstration in the streets of Bonn, um, and uh, Saul, who's filing the lawsuit, uh, he held a speech at uh, uh, yeah at the demonstration. Um, and actually, I didn't hear the speech myself, uh, but uh, but I I had been like really interested in South America and. In, in desiccation cases in general uh, before. Um, so my friends knew, uh, and one of them came to me and said, hey, did you hear that guy just uh, ha- having that speech? Uh, no, 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 what was? Mm-hmm. And she explained me, and I ran to the the back of the scene. Uh, like, I ran to the, what do you call it? <laughs> I ran to the backstage of the scene, uh, and, uh, and talked to Saul and to the people from German Watch, who was there, um, and asked him more about the lawsuit and asked if I could come and visit. And uh, yeah, then two months after I was in Peru doing mm. my field work. That's a super good start of the story, I believe. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was. <laughs> yeah. Can you explain to me how Saul got involved with German Watch to file this lawsuit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it was um, it was during uh, COP20 in Lima, uh, where uh, German Watch, uh, this German NGO who was co-filing uh, with Seoul, um, they were there in Lima to um, to attend, and they also had an ambition to like find someone to do a climate uh, lawsuit with, um, and uh, and then. At the same time, uh, Saul he lived in, still lives in Huaraz, uh, which is a bit out of Lima. Um, he was there uh, as a farmer, but also as a mountain guide, uh, and he saw the consequences of climate change. And through his education as mountain guide, he learned like about climate change and um, and where it comes from. Like, how is it? How is it created? Um, and um, so he got like frustrated and wanted to, yeah, to to take action somehow. Mm. Um, then um, the link between the two uh, was a, a former a mining anti-mining activist uh, from Cajamarca, another city in the northern Peru. Um, he was there doing some like local work. Um, with uh, amongst others with Seoul um, and he knew uh, some people from German Watch so he uh, he mediated the the contact between between them um, so he was quite an important link actually mm. um, yeah so you were saying this was like a anti-mining you could say activist yeah so how come they decided to file a lawsuit against RWE and not just any other company like yeah uh, that's because um <coughs> so so what they did was that they um looked at this report called the carbon majors report um written by a guy called heat um where he has listed uh like the hundred biggest emitters since the industrial revolution um and with the biggest emitters means so the companies um, that are responsible for um, most um, fossil fuel uh, production and combustion since then. Mm. Um, 
And on this top list, um, they found a German company. So because they were uh, they were a German uh, NGO, they yeah they 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 had to find a German company to file the lawsuit against uh, because they had to, which we will talk about also later, but they had to uh, to go with the national laws of Germany since that is, was where they were filing the lawsuit from. Um, so RVE in that list um, is responsible for almost half a percent of all CO2 emitted since the Industrial Revolution. In the world? In the world. Wow. So, so to say they are randomly, not randomly, picked from a list of the most emitting com- companies in the world to say who can we blame for the changes that Saul sees in his own region, maybe one of the biggest emitters in the world. Yes, r- randomly, but not so random, because mm-hmm. they are uh, not only the biggest emitter in Germany, but the biggest emitter in the entire Europe, actually. Um, so they do account for like a huge, huge part mm. uh, of the global emissions. Um, so that's also why they were, yeah, a good target. If it had been a, an American organization, yeah, maybe they would have targeted an American oil company or, yeah. Okay, so that's that's actually the, the, the connection between Saul and actually filing his case in Germany yeah. is, is German Watch. That's German Watch, exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. but the thing, the thing is, uh, the reason why it makes sense is that it's not completely random mm. um because um yes because it's it's the biggest emitter in Europe um uh, but also because it's um um like the the way they do it is that they look at the uh, the combustion of fossil fuels that is produced and burned here in Europe how that affects the global atmosphere which then affects everywhere including Huaraz, mm. where many other lawsuits they focus on, um, on like local oil spills, for example. Mm. Um, now we see more and more like global lawsuits, uh, but it's at the time when it was filed back in '15, it was a quite new thing to to do it mm. this way. And I think that's also why I thought this lawsuit was so interesting is that they're not attacking attacking. Uh, environmental I- impacts as much as climate impacts which is mm-hmm. way harder to grasp and actually point your finger to the person who is responsible so with the oil, oil spill you might be able to track which oil company spilled yeah. in this area wherever yeah. maybe in the global south but in this case where do you point your finger mm-hmm. when it's when it's climate change? Mm-hmm. I think that's that's super interesting, and I think we're going to talk some more about how they actually were able to build the arguments in the court, even though it's such a ungraspable, graspable uh, phenomenon that we are experiencing. And Saul, yeah. I can tell, especially has been experiencing. Yeah, I mean, yes, you can you can say that it's it's abstract or ungraspable but but what this case actually aims to do is to uh, to tell very concretely uh, who who is it that is responsible who is responsible for climate change mm. because 
like one thing that I'm also talking about in in the um, in the thesis uh, is this um, a term that I coined called diffuse responsibility, uh, which is this which is actually a critique of the idea um, that uh, that the responsibility of climate change is is an abstract thing that it's it's ungraspable or that that so many we have so many thousands of different emitters so we cannot put blame on a single entity mm. um and i think this is is this, i think this is an problematic uh view of things um because um when when you when because when you have uh when you see that everyone is uh, responsible or you say then it's like saying as as Hannah Arendt that I also quote she says when everyone is guilty then no one is guilty mm. um, and the opposite of this is to to look more concretely like so w- who is the biggest emitters because you have not emitters, emitted as much as RVE, this kind of this coal company has mm-hmm. emitted, uh, and and the Peruvian farmer has not emitted as much as uh, the German state. Or uh, th- there are differences, mm. uh, and and this uh, lawsuit, building on this carbon majors report, is an attempt to uh, go from this idea of diffuse responsibility, where everyone and no one is responsible. Uh, which also put guilt in the individual, to uh, to putting a responsibility on those entities that actually emits the most to make it concrete and scientific that we do have people, not people, but entities that mm. are bigger emitters. Does it make sense? It makes it okay. makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I think one of the words surrounding this subject that you also mentioned in your thesis is uh, polluters pay yeah. principle. Mm, can you elaborate a bit for us? Yeah. So the polluters polluters pay principle uh, is um, is the principle that um, that the polluter pays. <laughs> 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 so the idea is that. Uh, that however much uh, an entity, uh, let's say a company, to make it easily graspable, uh, has emitted, um, uh, then that same percentage is the percentage of responsibility for the consequences that uh, it makes. Um, so to say it in easier words, um, RVE is responsible for h- almost half a percent 0.49, I think, mm-hmm. percent uh, of all global emissions, according to this report, then RVE is, is 0.49 percent responsible for climate change. Then, because of that, RVE has to um, to pay for 0.49 percent mm. of the security measures that uh, that they have to make in Huaraz mm. to avoid climate change. Um, yeah. So that's the principle. That's the Lutus Pace principle. Um, simultaneously, there is another uh, aspect of this principle: is that um, uh, just because one polluter doesn't damage in itself, 
uh, doesn't mean that he's not responsible. So, for example, again, RVE only half a percent. Um, but together with all the other big companies that produced and burned fossil fuel through the years, they create a lot of consequences. They they create climate change, climate mm. crisis, basically. Um, and and then they can still be held responsible for each of their part of the um, of the consequences. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it sounds very interesting. I do believe, I guess, that RWE didn't agree on this in court in the first case. <laughs> can can you can you tell a bit about like what are the arguments they would put forward and how would you build an argument against them? Yeah. Uh, so, what happened in court uh, was that, uh, yeah, RE of course they fight with the <laughs> everything they have against this because they know, even though it's only a small amount of money for them, uh, they know that this can create precedence for other cases and it can be a catastrophe for their business, basically. Um, so what they argue is actually much in line with uh, what I just before uh, talked about, about diffuse responsibility, uh, because they talk much about uh, that, well, you cannot, held, you cannot hold us responsible because everyone is responsible, uh, and there's also agriculture, and there's also cars, and there's also this and this and this. Um, uh, and hereby they, they try to they they try to push off responsibility from their shoulders. Um, what happened then was that in in district court, so the first court, um, they they actually accepted most of RVE's rejections, uh, apart from the one saying that they could potentially be held responsible. Um, but all the other arguments they actually rejected. Then Saul and the German Watch they decided to um, to take it um, to take it to the regional court. Uh, and the surprising thing was actually that in that in the regional court uh, they actually uh, they decided completely different than they did in the district court. They actually uh, did go with all with a lot of these arguments that uh, Seoul and German Watch put forward, and they did reject a lot of uh, of the excuses that RVE put forward. Mm -hmm. um, so that actually means that at the moment um, we have a situation where um, where uh, the the sorry the regional court um, they have decided that that the case should go into uh, the next phase where um, where taking of evidence takes place. Mm -hmm. So it means that, uh, that they needed to find a lot of experts and then uh, these experts would need to go and, uh, and find evidence that, um, yeah, that this uh, causal uh, ch chain of, of events so actually happens so the events saying that yeah RVE burns coal uh, 
coal combustion creates climate change, uh, climate change uh, creates glacial retreat, uh, glacial retreat creates a bigger uh, a bigger glacial lake above Huaraz, uh, and this bigger lake above Huaraz creates a threat towards uh, the city, including the house of Seoul. So mm-hmm. this chain, they have to find like scientific evidence for all this. Okay. And that's the current state, which has again been postponed because of Corona and because of mm. slow decisions <laughs> and yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, it's still running. Mm. So it's ongoing. It's ongoing. It hasn't been finished yet. Mm-hmm. And just to clarify, you said that uh, it had been some arguments had been rejected and some ha- had been accepted. Mm-hmm. This is by the court. Yes, this so is by the court. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's it's not RWE accepting. No. Whatever. No. No. Of course Saul not. And Jim want to say. Of course not. Just 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 <laughs> no. to to clarify, I would have been very surprised. Yes. That would have been amazing. <laughs> but <laughs> no, no. Anyways, they're a cool company. <laughs> Not surprisingly. (laughs) Uh, Well, I think uh, I I, I want to ask you uh, a bit more about uh, what was um, the research you did in Oras. What were the things that you were interested in uh, getting to know through your interviews and and so on? Um, So I, to be honest, I actually, when I arrived in Huaraz in January, two months after I met Seoul in Bonn, uh, I did not have a plan. (laughs) Like, like as it probably is quite often when you start a master thesis, uh, unless you're a very structured person. Mm. Um, But but I, I didn't have a plan apart from, like, I had to find out what was up and down and this lawsuit thing mm. and I knew I wanted to do something about climate responsibility and slowly I just started talking to people and getting more and more like into yeah what would be interesting. So in the end uh, my focus became a responsibility of climate change uh, on on a quite broad scale. So I had kind of the I had the lawsuit as a kind of a backdrop mm-hmm. to my thesis or to my fieldwork um and then I started asking people uh, about uh, climate change not with the words of climate change because surprisingly many people uh, I I cannot generalize to say global south but I would guess but at least Surprisingly, many people in that area I was uh, in in the Andes. Um, they do not know the concept of climate change. So what you what I asked them was, do you, do you experience changes in weather patterns and do you experience changes in the glacial retreats and and all these different aspects of mm. the consequences of climate change in that area. And then and then I. I started to to try and find out like who do these these people see as the responsibles who is responsible and who do they blame for climate change because yeah there there is also a, a difference between responsibility and blame um but yeah I started asking people so who do you think causes these changes uh, that you experience um 
and I asked, I think I interviewed 50 people from both the city of Hordas and in the mountains, and I had many, many different uh, answers uh, of like everything from uh, its punishment of God to its, uh, it's because people trash litter in the street, uh, it's because uh, of cars, people in, in the rural areas would say, or people in the in the cities would say it's because of the agricultural burning in in the uh, in the rural areas. So they would like cross blame each other uh, a lot. They would blame themselves, each other, their nation, the local companies. Ma- most people would blame some someone or something near to them. Uh, some people also blame the the local mines that are like. Uh, basically or the local mines that are mostly um, different metals and stuff that they that they mine but that cause a lot of of environmental problems of mm. like water pollution and stuff so they would al- also think that they created um, climate change mm. um, yeah so I had a different uh, like a whole range of different ideas uh, of of what or who causes climate change a few people also said like international companies or uh, the big Western countries or mm. yeah, or stuff like that. Um, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> I, I, I think you you at least in, in part did. Um, I think it's very interesting because it sounds like something that is definitely to the advantage of the biggest polluters. Like as long as as people are more yeah. concerned at pointing their fingers to their neighbor, mm-hmm. they will not be attacked and they can stay exactly. uh, exiled in Germany <laughs> or, or <laughs> wherever, very far away from, from where the consequences are actually experienced. Exactly. And mm. that, that's really good that you say that because that, that is actually one of the big like points, uh, takeaways of my thesis is this... Uh, this idea that uh, that as long as we keep talking about this diffuse responsibility of of you as an individual, you have to change. You mm. have the responsibility, uh, and not like and and don't t- look at these like actually more scientific mm. uh, responsibility contributions on the big companies, mm. amongst others. Uh, then we will have this discourse of uh, well, everyone, everyone is guilty, and no one is guilty, and yes, that will benefit these uh, big emitters that can keep producing mm. uh, these very polluting things that mm. uh, <laughs> yeah create the climate crisis that affect everyone, but affect mostly the ones that pollutes the least mm. yeah which that's is the big injustice effect. of it all exactly yeah mm. and that's the big yeah that's the that's the mm. big uh, climate injustice that mm. everyone talks about right mm. that the ones that pollute the least they have the biggest mm. consequences on on them and their local uh, local area mm. yeah now it sounds like it's also a question of inadequate information to the relative people, at least the ones you interviewed in Oras, who who don't haven't been informed or haven't been able to seek information 
on why they experience these different environmental, very local changes. Um, but then I was thinking the lawsuit mm-hmm. at this time had already started. So did these people know about the lawsuit? Had uh, German Watch or somebody else done any work to, to engage them or inform them? Uh, I'm guessing that would have been before you arrived to do the interviews. Yeah. Um, so, so first, just to to comment on on the thing of of uh, lack of education, mm. I think I think that there is definitely like a need of of um, of more general information on on the causes of climate change, um, not only to that population but also to our own. Ooh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, when that is said, I think th- that there is also like an important aspect of of respecting like local uh, cultures and tradition and religions and for example like for example some people there are also like giving uh, offerings to the lake mm-hmm. uh, so that it will not uh, um, so that it will not flood the city mm. and you can laugh about that but you can also see it as as an important uh, life world in its own mm. um, yeah, so I think there is some some nuances in in this as well, mm. um, but um, for your other question about the lawsuit in mm. itself, um, yeah, so the lawsuit was started uh, three years, four years uh, before I arrived, um, and yeah, there there was some there was some misinformation i would say uh, about this lawsuit in the local uh, area um first of all there was not a lot of people who knew about the lawsuit like most people never heard about it um a few people uh, near to um to seoul to his villages um they they knew about it a few they knew what it was actually about mm. mostly his friends or people he had been talking to. Um, but then there was also neighbors or neighboring villages who had heard different stuff. Like mm. So they heard basically rumors. Mm. Uh, and I also heard rumors that someone started rumors to hurt Seoul because mm. he was jealous that he got too much, um, too much attention and... Yeah, it was it was um, yeah it was rumors like uh, yeah Seoul is getting millions from the Germans and Seoul is selling the lake to the Germans and yeah these kind of ideas mm-hmm. um, yeah and I do think that uh, that the reason for these uh, rumors is well that that actually I would say that there. At least two reasons. Mm. Uh, one of them is is that, as you uh, mentioned a bit, that German Watch didn't, and that was my critique of German Watch, that I think they didn't inform enough the local uh, population. So they didn't do the work of going into the villages, um, having uh, meetings. They had a few, but it was not sufficient. Um, they should have done much more informative work uh, with Quechua translation, mm. of course, because most of the people there 
speak Quechua, and mm. only only half or a few speak Spanish. Mm. Um, so they should have done much more informative work around the villages of um, of Saul, uh, because for him it it became a big consequence that there were these rumors, and that he said that I don't I. I I sue this very big company, and of course I have a huge enemy there. And he told me actually once that he was a bit scared. Uh, he asked me once if I think that he, they can hurt his family. Uh, and yeah, the, I I <laughs> I think that was quite shocking. But I I think it's because he also lives in a, a in a country where. Corruption is normal, mm. <laughs> um, so so that a big company that you sue will hurt your family is maybe not such a faraway thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, but apart from that, he also said, "Well, I I not only have one enemies, but I have many enemies mm. because of all these bad rumors that had been started up, uh, about him in the local villages." Mm. Uh, now suddenly they also became his enemies. Um, yeah, so that, I mean that's that's a quite horrible consequence for someone so brave to start mm. such a f- uh, very important uh, case. Um, yeah, so I think I think that's a very like important thing to remember uh, when you want to do such a really amazing uh, project as this project is. It's really important to to involve and to inform the local population properly mm. from the beginning. Um, yeah, I think there's also one other like aspect of it, mm. um, which is that um, the local population in uh, uh, in the villages above Huras, where so lives, there's like a few villages above, mm. and uh, it's a rural areas and um they are most of them are farmers of uh, and all of them speak Quechua, only few speak Spanish. Um it's it's the it's the original Andean population um and they often feel uh, kind of at the outskirts of the of the political system in general. Uh, so they don't feel they have influence and they often feel ignored from the political system uh, for many, many reasons. Uh, one of them is because of the language, like all all public political bureaucracy, public affairs, all this, everything in the city is in Spanish. You don't have Quechua written anywhere. <laughs> it's not even a written language. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they, f- they, they always feel excluded, mm-hmm. abandoned uh, from from the political processes, so they can quickly feel like this this process or this project is yet another um, is yet another political project mm. that doesn't involve them or even will make them harm mm. yeah. if they're not informed properly from mm. the beginning. So yeah. there's already a, a big big distrust. Mm-hmm. from from mm-hmm. the people living in this area which is super mm-hmm. rural both towards Lima but maybe even more so towards a German NGO for example 
like even though they might have their best interest in in mind. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. So in the lawsuit that we have uh, been uh, discussing, one of the like the, the main uh, risk that you see in Waras that is actually the one that is put to court is the glacial lake outburst floods that already happened once in 1941, right? Uh, and now there's of course a big fear yeah. that that's going to happen again because of climate change. Yeah. Um, but you also told me that one of the main threats that a lot of the villagers where Saul lives is water scarcity. Can mm-hmm. you elaborate on why this was not such a big part of the lawsuit? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's true that uh, that when you ask people uh, in in the villages uh, about their Um, their worries and fears uh, concerning uh, the climate changes in the local area, um, <coughs> then then the villagers tend to be much more concerned about uh, about water scarcity, both present wa- uh, water scarcity, but also and especially future, uh, because they know that that glaciers are retreating and that's where they get their water from. Uh, and it's actually not only them, but it's uh, it's all of Peru that get their water from, from glaciers. Um, so it is it is a really, really huge problem. Mm. Um, when you ask in the in the city, it's people are more worried about the the flood. Uh, And that is connected to to the risks that <coughs> that if the flood comes, um, it will hit a, a third of the city, mm. but it won't actually hit the villages. Um, mm. And water scarcity. So why is why are people in the rural areas more concerned? Because they they live more directly from it. So. People in the in the cities, yes, they also drink the water directly, but they don't see the glaciers retreating mm-hmm. as the villagers do because they live next to the glaciers, uh, and they don't depend on uh, on rainwater uh, in the same uh, to the same um, extent as the as the villagers do, where the villagers most of them are farmers, uh, small scale farmers. Um, they depend heavily on uh, irrigation, uh, so that uh, the water uh, comes in um, in a certain flow and so on. Um, <coughs> yeah, so that's the reason for these like different worries mm. um, and fears. And so the reason why the lawsuit is n- does not take the water scarcity into account uh, is that um that it's it's actually mostly because of practicalities um there is a the reason why it's it's um the reason why it's a good idea to do it on the the lake outburst flood risk um is that you you already have a lot of measures so <coughs> because there is it already happened before That's one thing. It happened in 1941. So they already know more or less how it will be if it happens. 
Um, they have a rescue plan if it happens. They know um, um, they know what to do to prevent it. Uh, there is a, gov- a government plan for actually securing the lake, uh, for draining the water, for putting up security systems and so on. It, they have been working on this since the 70s, but it, it keeps it has to be updated all the time because more and more water flows into the lake. So the danger becomes bigger and bigger and they need more and more serious uh, alert systems. Um, and <coughs> and the project uh, that is underway now from the government has been underway for years, uh, but there is a budget. They know exactly how much it will cost uh, and they know have a plan for what they will do and all this um, so that's why it's it's um, uh, let's say easy <laughs> to take uh, this plan into the court because you have you have some very specific measures mm-hmm. on 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 here we have uh, the consequences the consequences is the risk of the glacier lake outburst flood uh, the ways we can mediate it we have a plan for that, and we know exactly how much it will cost. And here is the budget, and here's what we have to do. Uh, please pay a half a percent. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Uh, and this is so. This is very concrete. But the water scarcity is not so concrete in that way. It's very concrete for the people who live it. Um, but there is not a plan for how to avoid the glacial retreat. Mm. Uh, there's no budget for how to avoid glacial retreat Mm-mm. and and there is not there is no measures in place of how to avoid glacial retreat Mm-mm. which yeah and there's no plan for how to avoid the rain uh, fall patterns to change how do you avoid that only by stopping climate change so there's not there's not like a you cannot put a government measure you cannot like just just uh, put a construction or something Mm-mm. to st- to stop glaciers to retreat or rainwater to f- fall normally mm. yeah so so to say this is also a conflict between something that you can mitigate yourself out of <coughs> and something that actually requires reduction of em- emissions yeah, which might be way harder to make a company like RWE to agree to do. Yeah, sure. Mm. I do, however, have to um, maybe, uh, if not correct myself, then mm. then uh, add something mm. uh, that there is a way to uh, to limit wa- water scarcity, and that that is to create um, kind of water reservoirs um, next to the glacier lakes, uh, so that you can you can stop the water from flowing out uh, and keeping it in in like safe reservoirs mm. that will go instead of <coughs> that will go instead of the glaciers uh, that retreats mm. um and that that's well that should be possible to do the problem is that there's not a governmental plan for doing this mm-hmm. um and you can then ask so why 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 not when it's mm. such a big problem uh, and I don't have an answer. Uh, I asked Saul, uh, and he t- he uh, he told me that uh, yeah he had a quite um, yeah I don't know 
stunning answer to this. And he told me, um, people have to die before something happens. And water scarcity is not yet an emergency. So the thing is, we can only uh, we only see a reaction on these these problems in this crisis when it has already happened. That that was his um, answer on it, mm-hmm. at least. Yeah, that is a very stunning answer, and it's scary that it might it might be true mm-hmm. to some yeah. extent. So moving from this very concrete lawsuit, which I think is, is super, super interesting, uh, I would like to, to talk to you about uh, how we can use courtrooms and lawsuits to achieve climate justice. And in, if you even believe that this is, this is possible. So, so what are the benefits you see in this approach uh, to reach climate justice through courtrooms? Yeah. Um. So I think there are um, some different benefits of it. I think it's it's necessary to do um, to use uh, climate litigation as a tool for climate justice, um, because I think it's it's uh, necessary to use to say it popularly to use the master's tool to challenge the master. Mm. Uh, I mean to to formulate resistance from within the power structures. Um, so I think it's <coughs> it may it might also be an answer to some anthropological to some uh, anthropological discussions um, that that you have to formulate a resistance from different ontologies, uh, which I don't think is wrong, but I think it's all it's at least as important uh, to formulate resistance from within the system that exists now um, so uh, I think it cannot it cannot um, create like profound uh, systemic changes which is yeah in the end qu- quite necessary to yeah to do something about uh, the climate crisis um, but however I, I think it's a tool to uh, to allow some enforcement of like some some crucial changes in the energy sector here um, when it's uh, climate education um, and I also think that um, uh, that it's important in the way that uh, that it can uh, pose like an investment risk um, so just like a Actually, just like the Indigalende, uh, the Indigalende um, movement has saying that we are the investment risk. I think equally we can also use climate litigation as an investment risk uh, for uh, the fossil fuel industry, uh, because if they risk constantly being sued by people who um, who feel the consequences of climate change. Uh, and have to constantly uh, pay off, uh, pay to to these people. Then, then it's it's less viable to to use and produce these uh, these fuels. Mm. Um, then I think with um, we have many now different forms of of uh, climate litigation cases, um, <coughs> but I think. 
like if talking specifically about these type of uh, lawsuits where we target like a company um i think that uh, if cases like this one is one i think it can help change this discourse that we talked about before that um to to change it from this like dif- diffuse responsibility of everyone's responsible and you cannot blame we all have to do something and and don't use so much water and all this rhetoric to change it into more over to we need to target the big emitters and they need to be responsible i think it it can kind of uh, legitimate the this this discourse and this mm. way of uh, of approaching um responsibility of climate change mm. um yeah I think this is super interesting because it creates like a, a very powerful story of, of justice. I know this is something we have been discussing a lot in our group here in ActionAid, that uh, not as much as actually creating a, a legal system where pollu- the big polluters are not, uh, are not legal. We do believe in the stories of, of justice through our courtroom, since courtroom still is uh, something that most people perceive as a very trustworthy institution that is in some ways a symbol of justice for a lot of people. It is, yeah, it is. Mm. And it it should be. Mm. (laughs) And it should be, definitely. And maybe exposing where we so far have not been uh, adequate in actually using these uh, institutions of justice to protect the rights of people also outside our own state nation states yeah yeah exactly i mean if if you if you look at what uh, what uh, justice means it it means attributing responsibility uh, and the the court system that we have today is is nationally bound um, uh, justice systems uh, court systems um, where we, uh, we as a as nation states, we are responsible to each other, but only as long as we are within the same territory, within the same nation. Um, that's also why this case had to happen uh, in Germany with a German um, company from a German NGO, um, because it was limited to. Uh, to its its national law, it tried to break these. It tried to to uh, to overcome this uh, nationally bounded responsibility uh, by saying, "Well, you you as a German company, you have you have uh, uh, caused harm to an individual living uh, in the global south in Peru." Um, and and thereby they've they've tried to like to stretch the German law, you can say, mm-hmm. uh, to include uh, people who are not limited to the German nation state. Mm. Um, ideally, w- I mean, ideally we should have a um, a global, well, an international court of climate justice, uh, because climate change is global and its implications are global and. 
Um, and the, most of the producers even operate globally <laughs> or internationally. Mm. Uh, so it, it's, <coughs> I think it's quite crucial, actually, that we should have this. Um, we cannot decide <laughs> as, <laughs> as us sitting here mm. to create that. It's quite a huge institution to create. Mm. Um, but what we can do is that we can, uh, we can take the law, the institution, the legislation work, the legislation structure that already exists, and then we can we can start seeing how can we use these tools to uh, stretch them globally and and to obtain more global justice and thereby also climate justice. Uh, look at which laws can we inter- interpret in a way where. Um, where it crosses uh, these nation-state uh, borders. Mm. Um, that's also what they did in this case. Um, they looked at, they took um, a, a German law saying, um, <coughs> if one man's use of his property uh, causes harm to another man's property, then the first one has to uh, has to um, pay um, pay something mm. to to compensate for the uh, the other man's harm. Mm. Uh, that's a that's a German law, uh, and they argued <coughs> German watch with Saul in front argued that uh, that RBE has their use of of um, of coal so their use of uh, digging up and burning coal has caused harm to Saul a potential harm uh, because he has this risk of being flooded um, or his house in the city has uh, so that's like one <laughs> one entity's property uh, and its use harming potentially harming another man's property. Mm. Uh, so they used this and they argued that this can be this can be stretched, so to say, or this this is not it doesn't say in the law that it's restricted within the national borders. Uh, and the court actually accepted this. Mm. And that's that's one of the reasons mm. why they could continue with the mm. with the case. And this is also maybe why this case is so significant because you've managed to, within the the the, the culture of of courtrooms, to actually argue that that even though the property that is hurt is outside the borders of Germany, mm-hmm. the company can still be evicted in a German court. Exactly. Yeah. Super interesting. Uh, um, so far, we've been discussing how courtrooms can be used as a tool to to achieve climate justice. Are there any other tools that you believe should be accompanied with the tool of using the courtrooms? I think we should use as many tools as possible. Uh, I really think that we should set sail on all fronts. Um, but yeah, <coughs> it's, a, it's a quite good tool. Um, it cannot... Well, the limit is that courts cannot make laws. They can only follow them. Uh, they can interpret them in certain ways. Um, 
uh, which we've also seen differently seen in Holland, for example, they've been interpreting some laws uh, quite radically, so that uh, so that we see some some quite uh, significant uh, climate mitigation victories there, as an example. Um, so it's a very I think it's a very good tool. Um, however, it cannot. Yeah, as I said, court cannot make laws, so I think it's also really crucial also to put political pressures on other fronts, so as to change laws, to make laws, uh, to to uh, to pressure uh, politicians, uh, governments in power to um, to create laws that protect uh, the life on earth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> said popularly but uh, mm. but really that uh, that secures uh, climate justice mm. um, so we need political pressure as well as uh, we can use uh, climate education as a tool so I believe this is a very very good place to end our interview we need to use the the, the master's tools the courtrooms but we also need to to create increasing public uh, pressure and the social movements should still be active even though we have the courtrooms to achieve climate justice thank you Lina very much for having this interview with us it was a pleasure it was thank you very much and the uh, Group here in Mellemfald i Samvirke or Action at Denmark will continue trying to talk to interesting activists and experts to to talk about and hear their views on, on climate justice and how we can use legislation and the courtrooms to somehow achieve climate justice. Thank you. This was the end of this episode. The link to Lina's thesis and her other works will be in the note for the episode. We've got a lot going in Mellemfolklisamvirke Aarhus. Mellemfolklisamvirke is a Danish NGO that works for a more just and sustainable world, collaborating with global partners worldwide as a part of the ActionAid Alliance. Here in Aarhus, we have over 100 volunteers working together to run a non-profit cafe and campaign in areas ranging from feminism and climate justice to anti-discrimination and economic inequality to queer issues and refugees' rights. You can come down to Café Mellemfolk every day but Sunday for food, drinks and events in a cozy café run by our volunteers. You can also get involved in our events, activities and campaigns and even running the café as a volunteer yourself. So go and check our Instagram and Facebook to find more about our café and our campaigns by looking up Café Mellemfolk or Mellemfolk Lissambierke Aarhus or following the links in the episode notes. And check out our Podbean, YouTube and other podcast providers for more episodes, interviews and cool stuff. Details are in the episode description. Thank you everyone for listening and until next time, goodbye.